So last week, actually we're doing a series called Why Pray? And the reason uh, we're looking at Why Pray is because we're bombarding everyone with resources on how to pray. You'll be connecting with that through the life group. I'll, I'll speak about it a bit in a minute. And um, we're also doing a lot on how to pray in the first half. Becca, Rach, Kat, very generously, and others um, hosting a lot on how to pray, which I found immensely useful in my life. The pause one, particularly in our radically busy culture, just even that is enough to kind of really help us to connect with God. But the reason I'm doing why, I talked about it last week, so please listen to that talk because I'm not going to go into it as much again. It's just a very brief um, synopsis from a cultural commentator called Simon Sinek you might have heard of, which he basically says, most of us know what we're doing in our life. Some of us know how we're doing it, but very few of us know why. And his, he was talking about the business world, and he said the businesses that are successful are the ones that genuinely believe their why will change the world and their how is the product. So Apple, I talked about it. Steve Jobs didn't wake up in the morning saying, I'm going to change the world um, because I'm making beautiful technology. He, he woke up in the morning saying, I want to change the world. That's my why. I want to make it a better place. And my how is I'm going to do it through beautiful tech. And then there were loads of other examples I gave. But the, the point is, we need a why in everything we do that's deep enough for us to be convinced that what we're doing will change the world. Otherwise, we won't have the fight in us to do it. So I think that includes prayer. If we don't know why we're praying, we won't have the fight in us to see prayer through. We need to know our why. Please listen to the beginning of the talk last week because I spent a lot of time going into knowing our why. And this whole series that we're doing at Hope in the second half is a live question. This isn't a conceptual, oh, that prayer is one of the things apparently Christians do. So let's think about prayer. We have a live question before God. We believe God's given us a word to build prayer at Hope. And we want to ask him to speak to us as a community. So at the end of the talk last week, we had prophetic words. What is God actually saying to us now about our why? And also, I think out of that will flow our how as a community, how we design to build prayer and what is prayer for us. So last week at the end of the talk, I, I kind of felt actually Jesus really unravel me because I went through Luke asking Jesus why I pray, trying to look in the gospel of Luke, the cause and effect between Jesus' prayer and outcomes, and came to the end of it in Gethsemane. One of the last prayer verses in Luke said his disciples are exhausted from sorrow and Jesus was going through the most excruciating human experience he could go through, wrestling with surrendering his life in a way that is the most inhumane form of execution anyone's ever devised. So an unbelievably deep human moment. And the decide his friends, his closest friends, um, actually it says they're exhausted from sorrow and they actually fall asleep. They, he wants them to stand with him in that moment of acute vulnerability and they fall, fall asleep. And he goes back to them in the text in Luke, and he says, he, so he's earnestly praying, he's praying um, drops of blood from his sweat, he's, he's under acute stress, and he goes back to them, and he says, why are you asleep, why aren't you praying, and literally, as I read that, it was like the Holy Spirit said to me, he unraveled me, why are you asleep, why aren't you praying, instantly, it wasn't, the enemy brings an accusation, Jesus asked prayers which are invitational, I knew it was an invitation, to healing and growth and immediately five things came to mind disappointment unbelief denial of the suffering in the world disruption that it will involve and the fear of retaliation those things instantly i knew why i'm asleep and why i'm not praying so we then dealt with that at the end of the talk we all stood up and asked god are there blocks to our personal why aren't we personally praying um and that's really important to get that that if you like the drain pipe the conduit of god's connection with us clear just clear through our repentance and then and forgiveness as well if we need to but this week I really so please listen to that because that's a really whistle stop tour of the talk last week and it ended on a note that could potentially be heavy or intense the kingdom's never heavy so if anyone felt it was heavy I'm, I ask your forgiveness for that because the kingdom's intense but it's never heavy it's always liberating but if it felt intense that's because it is intense to enter into um, Jesus' 
invitation to us to partner with the broken body of Christ in the world and, and intercede for restoration. Just like labor pains are intense, I'm going to come back to that. But it's an intensity that's always redemptive, always redemptive to new life, always birthing new creation. So before we go there, I'm going to look at, we've looked at individual, if you like, strongholds or lies we believe or ways of thinking that prevent us from prayer. But today I want to look at cultural strongholds in the West. Three things that are preventing us from moving into growing corporate prayer. And I don't mean just us at Hope, I mean in the West. These are, this isn't us and them, we're all in this. This is the culture, this is the river, the cultural river we flow in. And it's about just calling out and seeing it. It's easy to see in other cultures where we think people aren't kingdom, but actually the, the, the best and most useful thing is to be, reflect on our own culture and be called out of it, because that's where we're a pure vehicle of the kingdom. So um, the three things I think that prevent us raising community prayer are these three things. Radical individualism. I once heard that there was a, a church in South Korea that had the largest, it was the largest church in the world. And their prayer life was unbelievable. And actually their unbelievably generous serving people that went out across the world to most extraordinary places from, from this church and actually from the, the community of believers in South Korea. Unbelievable and still happening now. But I had a penny dropping moment that the cultural value on, on hierarchical community is different there to here. So there, if a leader says you do this, you have a thousand, ten thousand, a million people doing it because that value of, of community under hierarchy is so high. It's a high value, so people do stuff. In the West, that's completely anti-Western. Our high value is radical individualism. So you do you, I do me, you determine your own life, and... If it works with you to work with other people, great. But if it doesn't, self is our highest value. Now, the problem with all deceptions or cultural strongholds is intelligent evil or the enemy cannot create out of nothing. He always has to distort reality because he can't create reality. God is reality and the enemy can only distort it. So there is some truth, some reality into individuation. It is important within a community that everyone has an authentic voice. I am, I am at heart, I believe in democracy, demos kratos, demos people, kratos power. I believe in the reality that every human is made in the image of God and that therefore everyone brings a voice to the table. It's fallen and it's broken and I'm sure there's lots of things we can comment on that. But there's something kingdom about the fact we're all image bearers and we all have a voice. So when we're building healthy community, it has to be done through individual buy-in. Individuation is important. So we don't have codependence. We don't have independence. We have a healthy interdependence. And that's how you build community. So ironically, I think because of our history for two, three hundred years moving into radical individualism, if we build community in the West, which is authentic, I think it is stunning because every single person is volitionally bought in. No one's told them. They just want to be there from their own volition. And when you have volition, you have the kingdom coming because the kingdom's built on volition, not coercion. So radical individualism, though, may prevent us from engaging with community because it, it's disruptive to our own schedules. I'll give you a little example with me. I have a history of disordered eating. I have this ideal of a nice family meal and hosting round a table. Those two can't work together. My radical individualism of disordered eating cannot build community around a table. I have to lay one down for the other. So if I want to move into community, I have to get whole. I have to lay down my disordered eating, which is actually false. It's not real. And I have to say, okay, I'm going to eat at a different time because my children eat in a different time than I would. I'm going to eat different foods and I'm going to eat what's set before me because I cannot call them to something I'm not walking in myself. So actually, the movement out of radical individualism into healthy, individuated community, where everyone has a voice, everyone brings something, is actually a movement of healing and wholeness, because we're designed to be in community. We're reflecting the Trinity that is three persons individuated in community. So the, some systems, like maybe the traditional hierarchical systems, um, worldviews that some cultures live in, maybe emphasize that community under hierarchy too much. 
we emphasize the individual personhood too much, but the dream is the Trinitarian tension where we are all individuated and in deep community. So all what we need to do to move out of that is just, is just ask the Holy Spirit, where am I colluding with the lie of radical individualism? Where I actually genuinely think me doing this my way will actually make for a happier life for me and other people. I genuinely believe the kingdom's coming there. Because that's, he told me very specifically and continues to do, where the actual manifestation of that pervasive cultural stronghold is in me. And that's only something we can get through the Holy Spirit showing us. And friends saying, look, you're operating in independence, calling each other out, doing that thing. But it's very hard to see the river we're flowing in unless the Holy Spirit shows us either directly or through people. So what I would encourage us all to say is we're in this. We're all complicit with radical individualism. There's no, like, no one who's got this right. But what we can all do is ask God, okay, what does it look like for me personally to disrupt my individualism in order to walk into healthy culture, healthy community? So that's one cultural stronghold that will prevent, because if you get two or three in agreement in prayer, Jesus says the most incredible thing, anything's possible for you. So the enemy's going to do anything to stop two or three in agreement. He's going to do radical individualism. He's going to do division. He's going to do unforgiving. He's going to do anything to stop two or three in agreement because nothing's impossible for us when we have agreement. But you have to say, okay, I'm going to be in that time and in that place with those people. There's death in all those three things to radical individualism. Second one is, which is really pernicious and really intense, is materialism is the, the, unbel- the absolute conviction culturally that all we are is the material realm. Our bodies are chemical kind of equations. And the world is a chemical accident kept alive by a dying star. That, that is unbelievably destructive in so many ways. And I'm going to call out two in a minute. The problem, though, of course, don't forget the enemy only distorts reality. He doesn't create reality is it's true. We are material. We are not disembodied spirits. I can only relate to you if I am present to you. Even through technology, it's still material. Technology is material. So the world is material. God came in material form. Materiality matters. As Lizzie and others said, Jez said, it's how we meet God in nature. He is material. He's, he's sorry, he is spirit, but he has created this incredibly stunning material world that he's called us to steward materiality matters and it is not the end of our existence there is an unseen realm that is interchangeable with the seen and visible realm has a significant impact on our material well-being so two two ways i think that we're that the the fruit of this distortion one of which is the all we can do is quantify and measure because that's the only thing a material world view understands So when we have young people at school, the only thing we can do is examine them and test them and give them marks because we don't know how else to measure humanity. We don't know how to measure formation. One of the things we're doing at Hope is initiate, which is about understanding the formation of young people from children to adults is completely eradicated in our culture. There is no rite of passage apart from in Jewish communities through bar and bat mitzvahs and certain Hispanic communities in America. In the West, there is no rite of passage because we do not understand how to quantify or describe anything apart from the material. So the closest we get is sex education in schools. That's all we're like, well, we're biology, so we'll just teach some biology. And how we measure young people is through how they do in exams because we don't know how else to, to regard humanity. So with Initiate, what we're doing, and this is what any year seven plus, whether you're a parent or a carer, whether you're single or in a couple, anyone is invited to join us on this journey of Initiate where we are learning the real value of humanity, the formation of the actual person into mature, happy, well-being, functional adulthood. So exams, that's subtle, it's pernicious, I don't think it's right, but, it, but it's, it's like the top of the iceberg. But I'll give you another example now. I've been talking with Julia, one of our friends who runs a charity called Beloved, and she says there's, an in, there's, a, there's a movement now at universities 
where essentially um, p- women are being encouraged, female students are being encouraged to sell parts or whole of their body for sex to receive money to pay for their tuition fees, which makes total sense if you're in a material world. I'm a chemical compound, so are you. If you're willing to pay me for some physiological release, which you could give yourself, but for some reason you want to pay me to, I will receive it because I've got a cost of living crisis over there and it's just material. It makes total logic and coherence within the material worldview. You step aside and you're like, that is dystopian. How is that not dystopian? Any of us who have any humanity, it doesn't matter what we believe, and we have young men and women in our family, or our friends have young men and women growing up, we're like, great, that's the formation they're going to be receiving at university along with their exams, because you're only quantifiable. You're just a chemical connection. Materialism is pernicious. We live in a material world, but there is a real and vibrant and effective unseen realm. And as if we want to move into community of prayer, we have to understand how to operate in the seen and the unseen realm. Because what we do with our bodies does something to us. And then the final one is comfort. So we cannot coerce people in the West to come to church because that's anti-radical individualism. Coercion is the dirty, evil word in the West. And actually, that's right. I actually believe the kingdom's built on consent. I believe it's a kingdom value we've inherited, and I'm grateful for it. Coercion is unacceptable in any environment, home, school, any community ever. We are born... To, be, to give and receive love, and love is always volitional. The Trinitarian model, God is volitional in, it, in the giving and receiving of love. So coercion is a dirty word, and I actually agree with that. I think we've got that right. And again, the problem with this issue is the some truth, but there's a lot of deception. So comfort, what we do instead to make disciples is we entertain people and make them incredibly comfortable in church or in their church expression. We'll do everything to make it easy for you to be part of this community. We're going to give you great parking. Sorry, we don't really do that at Hope. We're going to give you really great adult-to-children statistics. Whereas the children's work smooth, we don't do that at Hope. There are 150 adults, probably to about 100 kids. It's hard being at Hope. There is nothing attractional about it. There is nothing you can consume. You have to overcome to come here and connect. That is incredibly intentional because I think that's closer to what it is to formation than being comforted and comfortable. So a great example of the cultural value we have on comfort is mattresses. I mean, it's like this whole industry where you can kind of lie on beds in shops and feel the mattress. And I always remember in the 90s, there was this like other bed that came in. It was from Japan. Can anyone remember it? What was it called? Futon. That was a moment in London when you have a flat, you don't have much space, you're like, these guys, they know what they're doing. Asian culture doesn't have a high value, East Asian, for comfort the way the West does. Lie on your futon, it's, it's beautiful because they have a high value on beauty and elegance and design. It's efficient, it's effective, it works in small places. It is not comfortable. It is not comfortable. I don't know how it made an inroad. I don't know if it did. I haven't followed the futon mattress market. But we have mattresses. They are sprung. They're feathered. They're this. They're that. They'll, they'll shape around you so you have the most incredible sleep because we love comfort. And the biggest illustration of this is the gaming industry. I haven't, I can't, you'll have to fact check this, but I think I heard that now the gaming industry is bigger than music, TV, and film industry combined. Because what the gaming industry does is it delivers the unbelievable levels of dopamine and adrenaline and venture we're designed to have in an extremely comfortable, low-risk environment. Now, there are risks associated with addictions to gaming. I'm not belittling that. But just, just think of the gaming moment. There are chairs that you can buy for gaming. There's like, you get your snacks here. You have your whole room set up. And you're like, you've got your really nice headphones. And it's the most comfortable adrenaline rush experience you will ever have. You will put your headphones down, come away. You won't have a scratch on your body. You've probably killed so many people. You've had this incredible experience. Maybe you've driven a few cars and you're like turned over and you're in a ditch. But oh my gosh, you have come out unscathed. 
That is Western Christianity. It's called Fortnite Christianity, where you have the most incredible adrenaline dopamine experience, but you come out and you're a bit low because you're not formed in Christ. You're not, you haven't entered into the, the risk that is following Jesus. When he said to people, follow me, he, he actually took them out of their comfort zone. Peter would never have left Galilee and he visited Jerusalem three times a year because he was a devout Jew. He ended up going to Turkey, to Greece, to Rome, places he never would have imagined. It was terrifying and exhilarating and ultimately almost all of them, without exception, laid down their lives for that adventure. Their level of, I am getting out of my gaming chair outside to follow someone living who's actually taking me to real terror and real exhilaration was through the roof. They had something that I don't know if we have, but what I want is for us to have it. And actually, I look at people in this room and I think people get that and want it because I don't think you'd be here otherwise. So I've got three very little testimonies. They're so small, Um, but they're personal and they... They remind me that we're called to an adventure of faith, which is both terrifying and exhilarating, which is out of the house, out of the comfort zone, which is somewhere else. And it's around um, Biblios, which is something I've developed. And the reason I haven't really shared it is because it's a conflict of interest. But I think enough of you know about Biblios now for it not to be. And I also think the value of these testimonies in our faith community is important, more important. So I'm going to share... Three things that happened in, uh, there were so many stories, but three particular things that were just so encouraging in God telling me to do something. Um, I felt in 2009, I had a dream, turn a flicker of, uh, it was a flicker of color, turn it into the Holy Spirit, turn what's black and white into color. So I developed this overview of the Bible course, which, which meant that at some point we were guided, to, I needed to film for it as well as create um, the product. And so it came to a point where we actually, we needed money. We could, we like sort of made it work, but there's a point where you have to kind of up your money side of it. Chris came to the prayer center and he prayed and he was reminded of a story in two Kings about the siege on Samaria. There's a prophet in the land called Elisha. And he says, And there's this horrible siege around Samaria, the capital of Israel, from their enemies. And he has this prophecy, actually, in one day, your famine is going to turn to feast. And he tells someone, and there's a messenger there, and he says, because you don't believe me, you're not going to see it. So Chris had this sense that God was going to turn our famine, that the financial famine, our need, deep need for some sort of breakthrough financially, into feast, and in the text, it said within 24 hours, and the person who didn't believe it wasn't going to receive it. So I was like, okay, I don't know if this is literal or not, but I believe it. I believe it. Even if it's 24 hours, I am gonna, we're going to have faith that God will turn our famine to feast. I kid you not, Chris had this um, meeting with someone that was booked ages and it had been changed and so on. The next morning, he was going to ask him some advice. He came up with this box and this guy said to him, the Biblios box, and the guy said to him, I want to give buy into that, and I know other people do as well. So we are going to give you the thousands of pounds we needed at that point to keep going with the product. Within 24 hours, our absolute need had turned into abundant provision overnight within 24 hours, as God said. There is nothing like that feeling. It never goes away. It's not like a fortnight Christianity where you have a feeling and then it goes. I still feed on that. I still go, yeah, he did that. In 24 hours, we had nothing, and then he gave us everything we needed for, for the next season of that adventure. The second one was we were filming in Israel, and we had an Israeli fixer, which is someone who gets you access to different places. I'd never film, I'd never spoken to camera before in my life, apart from once, when, and the guy editing in South Africa saw it and was like, yeah, just look at the camera, don't look away. He was like, just... Don't know what to say to you, because you've clearly never done it before. Just look at the camera. And that was my only advice. I'd never spoken to camera. We'd put all our eggs in a few days in Israel, because if you're anything like that, there is only a few days in a year that you can organize logistics enough to do something. So Chris and I went together with a camera operator, and our Israeli fixer managed to organize all the different amazing places we could 
film like the Western Wall, which is an incredible privilege. But they couldn't access the garden tomb because that's owned by Christians. We had 24 hours in Jerusalem. So we went in the afternoon. So we had two early mornings, but uh, just over 24 hours. We went in the afternoon. And really the best time to film is either sunrise or sunset. Um, We went in to the garden tomb just to see and said, does anyone film here? We've got like a few hours left. And the person, the administrator there was like, no, (laughs) you can't just ask to film here. And then out of nowhere, the manager came of this this kind of Christian um, organization that runs the garden tomb. And he said, I shouldn't be here. This is my day off. My wife will kill me. But what is it you want? And I said, can we film here? He's like, no, (laughs) you shouldn't. You can't really film here. It's not how it works. And then he said, but what what are you? What are you doing? And we're like, already sure (laughs) but this is what we think God sent to us this is what we're doing he said okay you have chosen this week in November because it's the busiest week in the busiest time in the busiest part of the year the same reason you've chosen this week off season no kids is why all these tourists are here look outside and literally it was heaving it's like the busiest week day of the busiest week this year and he said but what I can do for you is we open at 8, and it is rammed from that moment onwards. But I can give you 7 till 7.30 outside the garden tomb, and then 7.30 till 8 somewhere else in the garden, and then you're done. That's all you've got. You've got half an hour outside the tomb and half an hour. We woke up the next day. We were leaving Jer- uh, Israel, Jerusalem at like 10 a.m., 8 a.m., I think. So we literally had this hour. We went in. Weather was beautiful. I kid you not, it was just me, Chris, Daniel, who was filming, and a gardener. It was us four in the garden tomb. And I was able to speak in front of the garden tomb about the resurrection of God in human form, who's made all things new. We then spoke in another bit of the garden, and then we left and had to drive north to Galilee. That is so small, but it's so big, because it's impossible. Humans can't make that thing happen, but God opened a door for me exactly when I needed it, with the one hour that I had to do it. And then finally, and for me, this is the most touching one, is we're in Rome, and... We had a fixer in Rome who was really high-end. He'd worked... Rome, I didn't realise, had the most tourists in the world. Uh, it obviously makes sense after you realise, you think about it, but it, get, it attracts the most tourists. So it's a lot of productions. He'd worked with a lot of TV. He was British, married to an Amer- uh, Italian, so he was really the perfect kind of person to kind of work with productions in Rome. And he'd done some work on the institutionalised church and abuse within the institutionalised church. He was in his 50s. He was, he was sophisticated, intelligent, cynical, and just probably was thinking, why am I here with these guys who can't actually use the right words? I'd only ever read the word Vespasian, which is one of the emperors. I hadn't heard it. So I said this talk outside the Colosseum, and Vespasian, he said, it's not Vespasian, it's Vespasian. He was probably like, oh my gosh, who are these people? Where's their research? Um, anyway, so he was with us. And sometimes he stood next to the camera. And sometimes he didn't, he chatted. Whereas the Israeli fixer was never there. I just was speaking to camera. So the only people who could hear what I say was the camera operator. He wasn't concentrating because he was thinking about the sound. And Chris, he wasn't concentrating because he was thinking, thinking about the light. And um, I could basically speak in language of faith. And that was fine. But we got 3 p.m. to the Pantheon, and it was horrendous. It's the worst time to film. It's really busy, really distracted. And it was on the hardest topic to speak of in the light of what I've just said about our cultural strongholds, temporal authority. When we operate well in our temporal authorities in the home, in work, in church, and in community, both in and under them, then we operate in the unseen world, in authority. And my basic thing was leadership is Christ crucified. That's true authority. Anything else which claims authority that isn't that is false it's just not real um authority is christ crucified because that is what god is like in his leadership of us he is christ crucified so any leadership role involves being christ crucified so i was trying to explain this it was really intense and the guy uh, and but the guy was watching me i was like oh my god i've got an audience of one who is really really not convinced and understandably so, by anything I'll be saying. This is unbelievably intense. Anyway, I finished uh, the talk and the little thing, and something happened to him. He completely changed. And if he's listening to this now, you have made my life. Um, He was like, 
wow, who are you? What church do you belong to? What do you do? I want to support you. I, he gave her, he's a photographer actually, that's his main job. He gave us, he took loads of photos, gave us free photos, which was amazing. And, it, and we put the pieces together and we realized he was one of the key guys who was calling out the, the sex abuse scandals in the institutionalized church around Rome at the time. And he just needed someone to say within five minutes, disentangling Jesus from that. And that actually Jesus and people who follow him as Christ crucified, that's reality. That's compelling. I want that. And he totally changed his mindset. He had a conversion, a change of mindset about what's real. And I was so unbelievably humbled that God would use me in a It was such an intense environment to try and deliver it. And it's a hard thing to deliver it. And everything about it was weak. And God just went straight to the heart of what this man needed to hear. That that he's, you know, he's a new creation, I know. I mean, he's in this earth now. He's a new creation. Because he just one taste of the real thing and he was in. He moved from cynicism, unbelievable, complete understandable rejection right through to, wow, okay, there's something in this. I want us all, we all have those testimonies of faith. I know we do in our lives, but I want us all to experience the life that is following Jesus. There is the risk. We have to get out of those gaming chairs. And we actually have to hear his voice saying, follow me and go there. And if we don't feel terror at least once a year, and exhilaration because we're following Jesus. We're not following him because that's what it looks like and feels like to follow him. For those of us here, and I know you, I know you, who are in the intensity, it's easy to hear afterwards, isn't it? But just to admire and honor and acknowledge one another who are in the terror waiting for the breakthrough, there is no other reason to be on earth. It's the most exhilarating humanity we can be because we're partnering with God. Now, you may say, that's lovely, but what's that got to do with raising corporate prayer at Hope? I think what it's got to do with is that's what it requires to break out of radical individualism, materialism and comfort is actually hear what Jesus says and do it. Because if we're all doing that, we will naturally, did you feel how uncomfortable I was? I was terrified in Tel Aviv airport. I was like, what the heck am I doing? Materialism out the window. We totally had to trust on God for all kinds of material provision. And I could not have done any of it on my own. If I was trying to do any of it on my own, I would not have been able to function. When we follow Jesus, we break those cultural strongholds. So the early church. What's beautiful about them is they prayed. If we can go to the next slide. go, Go back just one more. These are iconic pictures for those in Seattle, Tacoma in 2005. We received original design prayer originally on these yellow pieces of paper. I've kept mine. I have prophetic word journals where every single word that God's ever spoken to in my life through anyone is in one, it's three-volumed A4 place. I can go to it immediately. I had a dream, so I repented of stuff blocking me last week, and we all joined in in our own way. I had a dream. I woke up, and I... Felt God remind me of something I've literally ignored from my original design for 18 years. A picture of me on my hands and knees crying out to God to save the nation. The reason that's significant is because in Hollywood, when you give birth, you lie on a hospital bed and go, eh. But the rest of the world, you actually are on your hands and knees and that's how you give birth. So any imagery in the Bible of anyone, men and women, on their hands and knees... Because labor, physical labor is just an image of the labor we're all designed to enter into to birth new creation. Jesus uses it about himself. Paul uses it about he's in labor forming Christ in the Galatians. Jesus uses it about his disciples as well. The labor pains to birth, the human imagery of a mother giving birth is actually something pointing to something greater, which is us partnering with Jesus, travailing for new creation, both in prayer and in action. So when he said that to me, I felt like God was restoring to me. I'd repented where I'd lost my faith. 
And he restored to me in the night a, a phrase in my original design I've literally ignored and not wanted to go there for the reasons I told you last week. I don't want to feel the pain of the suffering in the world that it requires to get on your hands and knees and cry out in intercession. It's just that I, I repented of that. I'm in now. I'm in. That's what repentance does. It changes you. I want it more than I date, but last week I didn't want it. Repented of it. Three days in. It was like early Tuesday morning. I had this picture. This is exactly what Elijah had after he was, he said, rain is going to come. He got on his hands and knees. This is a prophet in the Old Testament. There'd been a famine for three years in the land. He got on his hands and knees, kept going out, asking a servant to look at the horizon seven times. The seventh time, the servant says, I see a cloud, small as a man's hand. Rain is coming. You've, you've been birthing and travailing for life down there, Elijah. And he stood up and after seven times, there was the hint of rain and then there was an outpouring on the land. Now, what's significant for us in terms of the early church is James, one of the brothers of Jesus, writes in his letter, Elijah was a human being just as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. So this is the next slide. Again, he prayed and the heavens gave rain and the earth produced its crops. There is no such thing, I'm going to be controversial here, and I'm willing to be called out on it. I don't think there's a gift of intercession. I don't think some people are called to be intercessors. I think Elijah is a man just like any of us, and we're all called to cry out earnestly for God for rain. I think it's just what it is when you get closer to God, you cry out for the things he cries out for. This whole thing of they're the intercessors and they're this, they're that. There is gifts distributed amongst the body which help contribute towards intelligent, thoughtful, corporate intercession. The prophecy, the gift of teaching, the gift of healing, the gift of these come together. But every single person in this room is an intercessor because we're in Christ and that's what Jesus was. During the days of Jesus' life on earth... He offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office, but because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. Jesus is currently right now interceding for all of us and all of humanity. And all we're doing when we're praying is coming into agreement with what he's already doing. We're partnering with him. And there's this, I'm going to end with this beautiful story in the early church. When the, Pente- the, the Spirit is poured out at Pentecost, it says, we've looked at this a lot, so I'm not going to look at it now again, but in Acts 42, 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Prayer was their devotion in, co- in community, not just on their own, but in community, they would come together and pray. It was a devotion to them. And we saw how in some ways, and we'll, we, you'll look at that in some of the resources that we're putting out in the life uh, life groups, there was maybe a, a sense of fixed hour prayer of um, following the evening sacrifice set up in Moses' tabernacle in Solomon's temple morning and evening. In the exile, when they were estranged from their land, we see Daniel prayed three times a day, looked back to Jerusalem and prayed. And it looks like by first century Judaism, there was this idea that you pray three times a day. And you also fasting had increased. So there's only one day of fasting prescribed in the Torah, Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. Everything else is feasting in the Torah, but there's one day where the high priest atones for the sins of the people, where there's a fast. By the time they get into exile, they're in acute pain. They they institutionalize four fasts. By the time you get to first century Judaism, the Pharisees were practicing two fasting days a week. What you see in the early church is that. But what you really see in the emphasis of Luke is just a heart connection in community, crying out to God in relational partnership with him. So I'm going to finish on the most poignant story. I think it's in Acts 12. We're going to read it out. Of the 12 apostles, they tragically lost Judas, who took his own life. And there were 11 of them chosen by God. And they were marked by incredible power and miracles. They'd been put in and out of prison. It was really intense for them. They started to see persecution amongst those who weren't. 
So people like Stephen, he was the first person to be martyred because of his belief in Jesus. And Peter and James are put in prison. This is in about 44 AD. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with the approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. So they've heard this news. They've seen what's happened with James. It's Peter, James and John and Jesus' closest friends. That's the first of the apostles to be executed because they follow Jesus. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. The angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. It's just so beautiful, poignant, humane. They're crying out to God earnestly. And when the prayer is answered, they're... They don't see it. They can't see it. It's too much. It's too impossible. Just love that. That's us, isn't it? We cry out to God earnestly, and then we're not quite sure when prayers are answered that 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 could really happen. And that's all he requires. That's all he requires. It's so touching. It's just a community who cry out to God earnestly, even if we're not quite sure we're going to see the answer, we don't really believe, or when the answer comes, we ignore it. He just loves it. He, he, he heard their prayers and he answered. If we have the last slide, this is the end of this little part one and two from me in Luke and Acts. Why pray? So simple and so basic. But because God answers prayer, no other worldview, religion, atheism or anything can make a claim that the one we worship or follow, whether it's ourself or God, actually hears has a relational heart for us and actually moves on our behalf and answers things. In in the original why, we have to be convinced that our why will change the world. Why pray? Because it really does make the world a better place because we can pray to God who wants our prayers and will answer prayers on our behalf. So I'm going to end with three global testimonies of God's answering of prayer that's happened in my lifetime. I mentioned, touched on this last week at the end of the talk. Between 1982 and 1989, um, Open Doors and Ministry started by a man called Brother Andrew, started praying for the Iron Curtain communist regime to fall in Eastern Europe. This isn't a political commentary, as I said last week. All systems are oppressive, as I called out today. The West is an oppressive system. It just looks different. But I think the particular pain there was people were being oppressed and persecuted and put in prison for their faith. So it was a crying out to God. They set themselves seven years I know it because I saw it on TV. 1982 plus 7 equals 1989. In 1989, the Berlin Wall fell down, and like a domino effect, the entire systems that were opposing people freely praying and worshipping God across Europe just fell, almost without any bloodshed. Seven years of travailing prayer and a complete system change across Eastern Europe. This is very complex, what I'm going to say now, and and it's not straightforward, but there was a Truth and Reconciliation Commission that was set up in South Africa at the end of the racist apartheid system to to oversee a smooth transition to a 
the first ever democratically held elections, which included the black majority and was won, as famously as we know, by Nelson Mandela, who led the, the most voted for black majority party. Now, I know there's complexity around that, but it was prayer. It was a prayer movement, as well as other things, that enabled what could have been hell on earth to oversee a, a smooth transition of power from one evil system to one more just and fair system. We still need to keep praying. And then the final one, which is live now. For 20 or 30 or 40 years, prayer movements across the world have been targeting what's called the 1040 window. That's the window. It's 10 degrees north of the equator to 40 degrees north of the equator because they are the, mo- the people who have the least access to understanding who Jesus is as both human, fully man, fully human. That prayer is being answered in unbelievable ways because the majority of the 1040 window has um, an Islamic worldview which, which doesn't claim intimacy with God. The first words of the Quran are, I'm a slave to Allah. And Jesus says, I no longer call you slaves, I'll call you friends. They understand Isa as a prophet, but not as the son of God. They understand that he was crucified, but he wasn't physically resurrected. He was taken up by angels to heaven. So they respect Jesus, Isa as a prophet. However, because they, they don't believe in the physical death and resurrection of Jesus, they can never access full forgiveness. They never know grace. Never know that God meets them where they are and holds them. There's, there's a, it's built on a system of self-righteousness, which is so, so demoralizing and heavy. Because we're not designed to be self-righteous. We're designed to inhabit God's righteousness. Anyway, this prayer movement is, is unbelievably being prolifically answered now. There are more Muslims coming to faith now, um, particularly across the 1040 window than any other time in history, in the entire history of Islam to the present day. The fastest growing churches are in Iran and Afghanistan. So God answers prayer. He, we ask him for things as a community and he answers and he moves our own lives and does little exciting things in our own lives, but he also moves whole global systems that, that prevent people from having intimacy with him on, on, on behalf of whole systems by communities who pray. So what I'd like to do now in the last two or three minutes, what we did last week is we repented of personal stuff in our life that's blocking us, and then we moved in the opposite spirit. What is God saying us to saying us about building prayer? And I actually want us to listen again for three or four minutes. What is God saying to us about building prayer at hope? What does it look like for us to build prayer at hope? Because I believe he wants to speak to us as a community, and we want in the next few months to, to hear his voice. If you feel there's radical individualism in you that's preventing or materialism or comfort, you know how to deal with that. We're all grown-ups here. So what we're going to do now is go straight to the hearing God for the opposite spirit. Lord, I thank you so much that you love to speak to us and you love to mobilize us. You love to, if you say you've called us to raise prayer, you will, you will, you'll get us there. You'll get us from A to B. But we need you to speak and you to show us the way. So we ask you, Lord... What does it look like for us to raise prayer at hope? And we trust that you will bring some prophetic words to us now. If anyone has any senses, do come up to the microphone and share. I just want to share, um, many years ago I spoke with a sponsor and he told me about prayer. And in the early days of praying, it was, it was a lot of, can I have, can I have, can I have? And then obviously as the years went on and on and on, <clears throat> my sponsor said, it's like a telephone, Christy, when you're praying. And he said, you, you have to leave time to listen to what God's direction has given you. And, you know, when I used to pray, 
I wasn't getting any real direction from God because my head was like a washing machine. It was just going round and round. And it was all about what I wanted. And then when I, de- when I um, gave up the I in me, you know, I pray now, obviously, but most of my prayers are just to give thanks for everything that he's done for me because he knows better than I do what's needed for my life. Um, but the quality of me maybe going for a walk in nature as people to talk about the serenity and all that. You know, I had to take time to listen to God's voice because the early days I was too busy blabbering, blabbering on and on and on and on. And I never, never had time to listen to his direction. So, you know, I just encourage everybody sometimes when we're in prayer and we finish prayer, the next five minutes of the silence and the serenity is then listening for God's voice for your direction. So, leave it to her. Yeah, thanks, Christy. I think that's exactly the issue is it's partnership. We're speaking and listening. So we're not just listening, we're speaking, but we're not just speaking, we're listening. There's a partnership there. Um, we, Chris and I, really don't want to, none of us want to rush this process. So we want people to be sitting on anything you feel, you sense. Please feed it into us. We're going to be literally digging in prayer for months until we feel we hear God's voice. Because this isn't a theoretical journey. This is a live question. We want, as a congregation, as a community, to hear God for what he wants us to do and how he wants us to do it. So I'm going to pray to end now. If you have any senses, please email them into the office or tell any, any of the elders. And we will be chewing over these words and pressing into them as a community together until we're all as one. We're like, yeah, this is, this is how we're moving on in the next step. So, Lord, I thank you that, um, that you love us so much. And we come alive when we say yes to your adventure. And your adventure looks different for all of us. But there's also something of community and doing it with other people that just forges such deep love amongst us, which is your vision for us. And so I bless us now as we do this series, as we have this live question, Lord, show us what it is that you have for us. What is the good work of faith you've prepared in advance for us to do at Hope? And particularly regarding prayer and and, um, how you want us to do it. And, And most importantly, I think, just embed that why embed it until we really believe it that's because you hear you're real and you answer prayer amen